Okay, Galatians chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 15 today. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Father, we are so grateful for your loving kindness, your grace, and your mercy toward us. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather once again on another Lord's Day and to sit under your holy word. God, we believe that your word is true and that it's righteous and that it's good and that it benefits us every single time we listen to it and live by it. So Father, we rejoice this morning in the reading of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would now minister to each one of us through your word, that you would instruct us, that you would speak to our hearts, and that Lord, you would use your word to continue to form us into the people you've called us to be. This morning, we see the the people that we've been called to be is your children. So Lord, help us to then, from your word, live as children of God. Lord, we ask that you would do these things now in our hearts and in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Well, as Ryan mentioned, it is great to see all of you here in the parking lot. This is a different setup for sure, but the birds are chirping. And we can thank God that we're not in Bakersfield. No disrespect to the folks of Bakersfield, but we live by the coast and this is beautiful out here. It feels great. It's comfortable and uh, we're going to rejoice and be glad in God's kindness to us. Well, as I was reading that passage, it probably was clear that this passage is, in fact, a mouthful. There's a lot going on here. There's some cryptic cryptic language here that um, is a little bit confusing as you first 
read it. And so if ever there was a week where having screens with some sermon notes would be ideal, this would be that week. But we don't have that. So I'm going to have to invite you to really tune in and focus on the teaching of God's word. And I'm going to speak very slowly. No, I'm just kidding. But I'll do my best to make this as clear as I possibly can. So here we go. Um, Let me set this passage into its context for us. Um, In the book of Galatians up to this point, the Apostle Paul has been hammering the idea home that people, that human beings are justified, meaning that we are made righteous before God through faith alone and not by works of the law. It's not by us obeying the law of Moses and doing that perfectly or doing that good enough that God somehow says, okay, that now is good enough. Me and you are okay. We're in right standing and our relationship is fixed. Paul's saying that's not the way that it works. The way that you are forgiven of your sins, the way that your broken relationship with your creator is now fixed is through the work of Christ and by our faith in him. Now, last week when Justin preached for us, which Justin, again, great job. Thank you so much for that clear sermon last week. When Justin preached last week, uh, Paul was making this point from the Old Testament scriptures. You remember Justin quoted or showed that Paul quoted four different passages in the Old Testament to say you're not justified by works. The week before, Paul made this case by looking at Father Abraham's example, as well as the example of the Galatians' own experience. Paul was like, look, how did you receive the Spirit of God? How has the Spirit been operating among you as Christians? Is it because you guys have obeyed Torah? No, it's because of your faith in Jesus. And then the week before, at the end of chapter 2, Paul made this same point by just declaring it directly. Here's Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, what we need to know from Galatians up to this point is this. No amount of doing the law, no amount of right living, no amount of moral reform and following all the rules is going to make you right with God. That's not the way that it works. Why? Because none of us are good enough. We're lawbreakers. So that's not the way. And if you think that you're going to come to God And that when your life ends, you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you can look back at your life and say, here's all the good things that I did. You're going to be terribly disappointed. Paul's point in Galatians is that the only way you're going to hear those words from God on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant, is because by faith you are joined to the only faithful servant of God, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the Galatians, for us, if we're thinking carefully now about what I've just said, there's a really obvious question that comes up. And the question is this, well, why then the law? What what was the whole point of the law? If it's not about making us right with God, if it's not about getting on good terms with God, then why would God give the law 
to us? That's the question Paul asks directly in verse 19 and then answers. But to begin the answer to that question, Paul addresses what the law did not do. We see that again starting in verse 15 in this first paragraph. And his answer to that, what the law did not do, is is simply this. The law did not cancel out the promises that God made to Abraham. The law did not improve on those promises. The, The law did not alter those promises. The law did not cancel out those promises. Now, we've talked about this a little bit already in the book of Galatians, that This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 12, where God meets with Abram, who would become Abraham, and he calls Abram to leave Ur and to go to a new land that God would show him. And God makes a few promises, amazing promises to Abraham. And these promises include that that God would give Abraham an amazing land to live in. That God would give Abraham tons and tons of descendants. Remember, God said, look at the stars of the sky. He said, can you number them? Well, your descendants are going to be like that. They're going to be more in number than the stars of the sky. So God promises him this great land called the promised land. He promises him numerous descendants. And lastly, God promises father Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, the other nations of the world are going to experience blessing. These are the promises that God gives to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. And then God ratifies these promises through a covenant. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 15, but I'll give you the the spark notes right now. What happens is God tells Abraham to take some animals and he cuts all the animals in half and he lays them, he separates them into two halves. So there's a pathway in the middle of them. So you've got all these dead animals, they're cut in half and there's a pathway between all of them. This is the way people made covenants in the ancient world. I kind of like a handshake better, but this is what they would do. And both parties, when you would make a covenant or a, a contract, an agreement, is both parties would pass through these dead animals. And essentially in doing that, what you're saying is, so let it be done to either of us if we break this covenant. Now, what's so significant about Genesis chapter 15 and this covenant that God makes with Abraham is that only God passes through the animals. Abraham never does. He falls asleep, kind of like us. So he falls asleep. God passes through the animals, and God is saying there very clearly that this is a unilateral covenant. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to fulfill my promises to you, whether or not you do what I ask you to do. This is me guaranteeing to you that these promises will be realized, and I'm putting my word on the line right now. And so Paul now is referring back to this moment. God is saying, or or Paul is saying rather here in Galatians, that God began forming a people for himself all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, 400 something years before the law ever came to Moses. And what that means is that this law did not come along and do away with a promise that God had already made. And to prove his point, Paul uses this human example, and it's an example of a legal will. So let's suppose that you wrote out your last will and testament 
about what would happen to all of your possessions and your resources in the event that you should die. And then let's say that you and your spouse tragically die before your children come of age. But in your will, you were very clear. You spelled out that, hey, all of my things are going to be split between each of my children. Well, your will would be very clear. Your wishes have been made clear there. But let's say that your family, um, the other adults in your family, have some disagreements about what is actually going to take place with all of your resources, and it falls into the hands of the court. Well, what would happen is the judge would then read your last will and your testament, and the judge would say, okay, the will says that all of your possessions should be evenly divided among your children, period. That would be it. Now, what would happen if the, the judge, as they're reading your will and testament, says, well, you kids are each going to get your share. And then he starts listing off a bunch of conditions. You kids will each get your share if, he says things like this, you don't get into drugs, you stay out of jail, you go to an Ivy League university, and you all become doctors and lawyers. If you do all of that, then you're going to get your parents' assets. That's not how it works. The judge can't do that. The will is already set in stone. He can't add new conditions to the will. And that's what Paul is saying would happen if we were to look at the law and understand the law as somehow annulling or changing the agreement that God had previously made with Abraham. The the arrival of the law four centuries after the promise cannot change the nature of God's contract. God said, I promise I will bless you, period. And that's the way that this is going to work. Again, here's what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is such a powerful reminder to us that God is a promise keeper. God does not change his promises because maybe conditions change in our life. The Knowing the Bible Study Guide in Galatians speaks to this, and I quote, God's promises are irrevocable. Here is an anchor for the believer's soul. God has promised us everything we could ever need or desire through Christ Jesus. Forgiveness, adoption into his family, protection and provision throughout the difficulties of life, eternal and joyful life in the world to come, and so much more amid the ups and downs in this world and even the fickleness of our own hearts. These promises are more certain than the rising of the sun or the steadfastness of the earth, for God will not and cannot break his word, end quote. So here's Paul's point in the first paragraph. The law did not come to change or annul or improve on the promise of God. In fact, in verses 19 and 20, it seems that Paul is suggesting that the law has always been inferior to the promises of God. Now, this is really confusing language here. I'll read it again. This is the second part of verse 19. He talks about the law. He says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It seems that Paul's point here is that the law came second or third hand 
whereas the promise came directly from God. God spoke directly to Father Abraham when he promised him all of these blessings. The law came from God through angels, through Moses, to the people. So it's as if Paul is saying, look, the law has always been inferior to the promise of God. That seems to be the point there. So what is then the purpose of the law? If the law didn't come to build on God's promises, then why did God give the law to his people? Well, verse 19 tells us very clearly. It was added because of transgressions. Now, there's three things I want to point out to you today about the purpose of the law. Why, why then the law? And the first is this here in verse 19. The law reveals sin. The law reveals sin. You know, when you go to a hotel and you, you get your hotel room, and in some of these rooms, you go into the bathroom and there's those magnification mirrors, those face mirrors that are usually circular. And a lot of times they have their own light ring around the outside. And you look into those mirrors and they magnify your face way more than the normal mirror in the vanity in the bathroom, right? And, and when you look into those mirrors, we, we were in Paso Robles last week and they had one and I just did this experience again. You look into those mirrors and you realize that you have so many more spots and blemishes and wrinkles on your face than you normally see in a regular mirror, right? Is that because staying in a hotel adds new spots and blemishes and wrinkles to your face? Of course not. It's because that particular mirror is magnifying. It's drawing out, it's making clear, it's revealing what was always there in the first place. In a similar way, God's law is revealing to us the sin that exists in our hearts and in our lives. Here's Romans 7, 7 and 8. Paul writes, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. But Paul's saying there that it is through the law that he became aware of covetousness. It's not that he didn't covet before. It's that the law makes it clear to him that covetousness is wrong so that when he does it, he's actually transgressing the law of God. John Stott, the famous Anglican Minister said, it is the law that turns sin into transgression. Now, to transgress means to actually pass over a boundary, to break a law that God has given to us. Again, prior to the law, God's people were always sinful, but the law just revealed to them that they were, in fact, breaking God's holy will. If you were out in the hills, let's say, and you were hiking, and you passed into somebody's private property, you would, of course, be guilty of trespassing. But you'd only know that you were trespassing if that person had a fence with a sign on it that told you this is, in fact, now private property. It's, again, once there's the boundary, once there's the marker, once there's the sign, now you know you are tra transgressing or trespassing, and that's what God's law does. Now, Jewish people, like all people, have always been sinful, but after the giving of the law, there was no longer confusion about it or question about it. 
Now they were aware that they were lawbreakers. And therefore they were aware that they needed forgiveness and grace and rescue from the outside. There's an important lesson here for us. And it's this, that you and I have to allow the law to do its work in our gospel preaching. What I mean by that is that, again, it's only through the law that people become aware of their sin. That people become aware that they're actually breaking God's standards and are therefore guilty before God. And I think so many of us were so quick to rush to the good news of the gospel. You hear things like, God loves you. And God has a wonderful plan for your life, which that's true, but that's all we want to tell people because we want to just make the gospel so appealing. But we have to let the law do its work. People have to come to grips with the reality that God is holy and righteous and pure. And through the law, we become aware that we are not and we fall short and we break God's commandments and we actually rebel against God. And it is only in that framework and in that context that the promises of forgiveness and mercy and grace become appealing and powerful to the hearer. So we've got to let the law do its work. So number one, again, why the law? The law reveals sin. Number two, the law restrains sin. Again, we read it was added because of transgressions. Some Bible students see that as the main point of verse 19. The idea that God gave the law to keep sin under control. See, the law comes and it's filled with warnings of consequences that you're going to experience if you violate the law. It also comes with promises of reward when you follow the law. And so in doing that, what the law does is it keeps people under control. It kept God's people relatively on track until the coming of Messiah, Jesus. It seems in verse 23 that Paul is also referring there to the restraining effect of the law. Look at verse 23. He explains there that through the law, God's people were held captive. They were imprisoned. That word there, held captive, literally refers to being under guard. And so think of what Paul's saying there. He's saying that you've got this this guard called the law. That is imprisoning you. So here Paul is explaining that the law is restraining you. That's what it means to be under guard or to be imprisoned. You're restrained. You're not free to do whatever you want. You're being restrained. You're being controlled. You're imprisoned. So Paul here is saying, look, the law actually was not about freedom. The law was about restraint. I used this illustration a few weeks ago, but it applies to all of us. So here you go. I'll use it again. Why is it that you and I don't speed badly? Notice I use the word badly because most of us do speed, but we speed only up to a certain extent. And the reason, of course, for that is not because we, le- we believe that 35 is good and righteous and noble and that this has come down from Almighty God, that these kinds of streets have got to be 35 and not 36 miles an hour. The reason, of course, is because we don't want to get a ticket. So we make calculated estimates. You know, when I have to drive through the desert to Phoenix and you're just on this long stretch and you don't see cars forever, 
and you look at the speed limit, you're asking yourself the question, how far do I think I can push this before a cop will actually pull me over? And however you determine the answer to that, you set the cruise control and you just fly through the desert. Right? Because you're thinking to yourself, I, I feel like if it's 70, I, I think I'm still safe at 72. You, you don't feel like you're at risk at 72 or 74, perhaps. But anyway, we just make a calculated guess. But the reason we're not doing 95 or 100, at least most of us, <laughs> is because we don't want a ticket. So the law then has what? A restraining effect. It kind of keeps us in line. And this is what the law was doing for Israel. Now, this is so important. Notice, going back to the speed limits, it's not that the law, it's not that having these speed limits posted actually makes us righteous. That's not the point. It's not like it fundamentally changes your heart to just go, yeah, 35, that is the perfect speed limit. It doesn't make you righteous. It makes you obedient. That's the point. It restrains you. It brings you into line. When you think about the way parenting works, Parenting begins with law. This is how you start off as a parent. You have your young children and you have rules and you have consequences when your children break the rules and you have oftentimes blessing and rewards as your children are following the rules. Why, why do we parent that way at the start? Well, we need to because we don't want our children to harm themselves or harm anybody else. So it's about law at that point. Now, the great thing about parenting, and Paul's going to actually use this metaphor here as we finish up our sermon today, is that although it begins there with restraining behavior, it doesn't end there. Parenting goes on and moves into a different place, and so does the law. Third and finally, we see the law leads us to Christ. So why the law? Number one, the law reveals sin. Number two, the law restrains sin. And finally, the law leads us to Christ. Look at verse 24. Paul here is going to introduce a role, a person he calls a guardian here in verse 24. Sorry, the wind blew me into Ephesians and I don't want to start a new sermon. So let me go ahead and get back to Galatians. Verse 24, Paul writes, So then the law was our, here's the, the, the role he's going to introduce, our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, a guardian is not a prison guard. A guardian is sort of a custodian. This is a person in the first century. It was typically a slave in a wealthy family's home and it was this slave who had a specific function. They were in charge of watching the children and sort of raising the children for the parents, again, in the upper echelons of society. So the guardian supervised the children for the parents. The guardian was largely responsible for disciplining the children. So images depicting a guardian in the ancient world would include somebody with a kind of a rod for disciplining the child. So they discipline, they make sure that the children receive their education. And again, they supervise the children during their adolescence. This is what Paul says now, the law was like for God's people. Now, think about this. The work of a guardian, this person that I just described, was not an end in itself. 
The work of a guardian was the means to an end. That end being that these children would come of age and would become mature young adults who could start thinking for themselves, living for themselves, and they would grow up to be well-formed young adults living in freedom and maturity. So too, the law was not an end in itself. Paul even shows us here it had a shelf life as far as the purposes of salvation were concerned. It was meant to form God's people in a certain way, to raise up the Jewish people to come of age, so to speak, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. The law was this guardian that would lead us, that would point us, that would direct us to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how does it do that? Look at verses 21 and 22. Starting in verse 21, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul says, look, the law was not able to give us life. Reason? None of us were able to keep the law. Now, when Paul talks about life here, he's referring to more than physically living. Of course, all of these Jews who were living under the law in the Old Testament were physically alive. But when Paul says the law was unable to give us life, he's referring to righteousness and eternal life before God. The law couldn't give you that. The law couldn't make you righteous before God and give you eternal life in his presence. Rather, the law brings death because the law pronounces all of us guilty before God. And the effect is that the law causes all of us to look somewhere else for rescue. The the law causes all of us to look somewhere else for life. It's through our efforts to keep the law that we learn that we need grace, that we need rescue, that we need help outside of ourselves because with all of our effort to obey the law, we can't do it. And so eventually we say, this isn't going to work. If this is what it takes to earn God's favor, I'm doomed. And that's the point of the law, to get you to the place that you say, I'm doomed. I need help. And then God says, great, because I'm here to help you. I sent you my son, Jesus. So like a good guardian or custodian of a child, the law leads us to Christ. Verse 24, he says, in order that we might be justified by faith. In Paul's analogy, the people of God come of age in Christ. Therefore, once Christ has come, the guardian is no longer necessary. That's verse 25. Now, this is very important. This does not mean that the law is now irrelevant for us. Tim Keller helps understand why. And I quote, he says, let's draw the analogy out. Is it the design of child rearing that when the child grows to maturity, he or she then casts off all the values of the parent or guardian and lives in a totally different way? No. If all goes well, the adult child is no longer coerced into obedience as before, but has now internalized the basic values and lives in a similar manner because he or she wants to, end quote. 
In other words, it's not that the law is irrelevant. It's that we don't view the law as some system of salvation. We don't look at the law and say, this is my way to get into right standing with God. This isn't how I earn God's blessing and God's favor. No, no, no. Our relationship to the law, now that we're in Christ, now that we're grown up, is that we keep God's law because we already have God's blessing and favor. And through the Holy Spirit, we've internalized it and we've adopted its values because we want to and because we believe that it is the best way. So for Paul in Galatians, the demand of the Judaizers, these false teachers who are teaching that they need the law to be blessed by God, this is nonsensical. Paul knows the law does not serve that purpose. The law was meant to lead you to Christ. And once it's done that, the law has fulfilled its purpose. Because listen, Christ is where all of God's blessings are found. That's what we find in the remaining verses. We see here the blessing of the promise. In verse 26, we see the great blessing of all that God has promised to those who put their faith in Christ. Verse 26 tells us, In Christ you are all sons of God through faith. The great blessing of the promise is that you and I become God's children through faith in Jesus. Now, it is important that Paul writes of all believers that we are sons of God, even though many modern readers might unwittingly see that as nothing more than Paul's inability to rise above the patriarchy of his time. Paul is strategic in saying that we are all sons and not sons and daughters. You need to understand that in Greco-Roman society, as with most ancient societies, It was sons and not daughters, and especially the eldest son, who would receive all of the inheritance and the property and the titles and the statuses from their parents. The daughters did not enjoy those blessings. In the ancient world, women were less than. For example, consider this Thanksgiving that's attributed to Socrates, the great Greek philosopher. His Thanksgiving goes like this. First, that I was born a human and not a brute animal. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. So for Paul here in saying that we become sons to refer to men and women, what Paul is doing is he's actually elevating women to a place of equal status as men in the body of Christ. Men are not more valuable than women before God or in this new community that we call the church. All of us, by faith in Jesus, are one in Christ, we read, and all of us are co-heirs of all that belongs to Jesus. So this hierarchical structure is done away with in our status before God. Why is this our new status? Verse 27 tells us, Paul writes this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Why do we become children of God? Why are we the sons of God? The answer is because faith, of which the public sign is being baptized, actually unites us to Christ. Look at the language here. He says you're baptized into 
Christ. Having put on Christ. This is very intimate language. Again, speaking of our union with Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar David De Silva writes this. He says in Galatians, Paul uses the image of baptism to underscore the submerging of each individual convert into Christ, with Christ engulfing, covering, enveloping the convert like a garment. So Paul is saying that through our baptism, which again symbolizes our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are actually in him and he is in us and therefore we now are united to Christ. Notice that baptism here in Colossians symbolizes putting on Christ. Baptism is a public demonstration of the union that we have with Christ by faith. It's a picture that shows the world. It's a picture that shows the church that you are in Christ. And one result of that is that all the distinctions that divide people in this fallen, broken world that we live in are done away with in Jesus Christ. Distinctions like your race and your ethnicity, your class or your socioeconomic status, even your gender, the things that again create hierarchical systems within our society and segregate people from one another. Paul is saying that through your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ and therefore we are all in Christ and we are one body together with Christ. And the beautiful thing about that is that this becomes the community, I'm pointing at the church, this becomes the community that all of our best aspirations as a larger society are meant to experience. Where we walk in here and we're not judging people by the color of their skin. We're not judging people or creating a pecking order based off of the nation that you came from. We're not creating a pecking order based off of what kind of car you drive or how much money you have in your bank account or what you do professionally or what side of the tracks you were raised on. And we're certainly not looking down on women or bashing men or doing anything like that because of your gender. You come here and we are equals before God and we equally value one another in the body of Christ, and we love one another, and we serve one another, and it creates this beautiful and profound unity that, again, the world is dying to have out there. This is a beautiful thing. In the church, we look at all of those who are baptized into Christ as our equals, period. Now, does this mean that Differences between people are completely erased in Christ? Does it mean that the color of your skin does not matter? Does it mean that uh, all distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions, are completely eradicated in the church? Does it mean that your gender doesn't have any meaning for who you are or how you relate? Certainly not. In Romans 14, Paul understands that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians will live out their faith in ways appropriate to their cultural heritage. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul talks about the differences between men and women in the family. Even the whole book of Philemon is written to a slave owner about a slave who are both Christians. So it doesn't mean that none of these things exist or that none of these things matter at all. What it does mean, though, is again that all of us are equal 
before God because of our shared faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 29 then is the summary of this entire section. Paul writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's saying here, listen, through your faith, you are now in the one seed, Jesus Christ, who all of God's promises are realized in. And therefore, you also are an heir of all that belongs to Jesus Christ. Everything that God promised to Father Abraham in Genesis is realized in Christ. And so if you've put your faith in him, then you are truly a son of God and you also receive all of God's blessings. So, let me conclude. In this passage, the Apostle Paul helps us to see the true purpose of the law. Far from being the way that you and I earn righteousness before God and join his family, the law served as a tool to reveal man's sin, to restrain man's sin, and to show humanity our need for a savior. If the law has accomplished that, then it has served its purpose. Like a guardian over a minor, it has led us to adulthood where now, in Christ, we live for God in the power of the Spirit, not in the fear of the law. So each of us need to answer this question this morning. Has the law served its purpose in your life? What do I mean by that? Has God's word revealed to you that you are in fact a sinner? That you have in fact transgressed against God's holy law? Has it shown you that no amount of getting your life right, of cleaning yourself up, of doing a little bit of religion, no amount of that could ever bring you into right relationship with God? Has it shown you that your only hope is not moral reform, but divine rescue? And have you responded to the law's lessons by placing your faith and your trust in Christ alone through immersing yourself in the waters of baptism? If you've answered yes to all of these questions, hallelujah. If you've answered no to any of these questions, then friend, today something needs to change. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that the promises of forgiveness of sin, of everlasting life, of a relationship with a loving Father in heaven are not dependent on our obedience to the law, but are given to us freely as a promise to be received by faith. Lord, none of us can measure up Even as Christians, we fall short regularly. And Lord, we're so thankful that that does not change our status because it is not dependent on perfect attendance. It is dependent on the perfect work of Christ who lived a righteous life for us, who was the true and faithful son. And Lord, we're so thankful that through his death, burial, and resurrection, our own sins have been paid for and we're granted eternal life. So Lord, we pray that once again today, you would renew our faith in Jesus. And that Lord, we would continue to abide in him. That we would continue to follow the teaching of scripture. 
not so we can earn your favor, but because we already have it. We know that you're a good father and that you love us and that your law exists to be a blessing to us. So Lord, we pray you'd work these things in our hearts and in our lives. Lastly, Father, we pray for any who have joined us today who have not put their faith and their whole trust in Jesus. Lord, would you change that today? Would you allow your word to do its holy work of convicting us of our sin and of pointing us toward the Savior? So Lord, we pray that you would save now, even in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's close now with a song of worship.